Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 30. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to give credit before I start, in case I forget halfway through the sermon, to, uh, I'll try to note couple of points that I get from a couple other pastors, uh, a guy in New York named Tim Keller, another guy in San Francisco named Fred Harrell. Uh, I'll try to point those out as I go along. Uh, we're, we're plunging this summer headfirst into the book of Philippians. And the Philippians is in the New Testament, the book of joy. Fourteen times within this book, he, Paul calls people to rejoice. He talks about their joy. This is a book about joy. And it's something that, honestly, we as Americans are very unfamiliar with. We are people who know how to enjoy things. We know how to, as enjoy, find our joy in lots of things. Finding our joy in a good book, in a good meal, in a good friendship. But in terms of understanding the kind of joy that he talks about here, this is foreign to us. Paul is chained to a Roman guard. He's on death row. He's awaiting trial. He thinks he may be killed at the end of this. As far as he knows, this is it. And so Paul finds a joy that is very different than what, the kind of joy that we find a lot. He is a man who finds joy despite, joy in spite of circumstances, joy in spite of hardship, joy in spite of chains. You know, and today we're going to read, we read this statement that Paul makes. It's one of the signature statements of Paul in the New Testament. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you, whether you've read the Bible a lot before or a little bit, you know, it's one of those statements that kind of sets apart Paul. You know, like, who is this guy who can say this kind of stuff? Who talks like this? You know, whether you like Paul or don't like Paul, and there are people who are both in in those categories, very much so. This is a remarkable man. This is a remarkable man. Paul was the catalyst for the explosion of Christianity 
throughout the Roman Empire. He went from city to city and was the man who was kind of the touchstone. Everywhere he went, he'd walk into a community and within a few weeks, a few days, a few months of being there, there would be a church as he moved on to the next place. An amazing person. Remarkable. But what was even more noteworthy this morning is, as I'm sure the Philippians... The Philippian Christians noted that Paul, when he says things like this, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, he is not being metaphorical and he's not being symbolic. You know, the circumstances of the founding of the church in Philippi would have caused the people there to say, I know that this guy means what he says. He means what he says. He says, for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain. They had watched as their own church was established in the face of, Possible death for Paul. Here's the backstory from Acts chapter 16. Paul comes to this community. There's no synagogue there, which means there are not 10 Jewish people there. That's where I usually went. He goes into the town. He begins to meet people and talk with people. As he's doing so, he's followed around by this kind of unusual person. It's a young slave girl, and she, is, she has some kind of clairvoyant powers. So she follows them around, and her job is, the way that she earns money, is that she has the ability to, to tell the future. And she's a fortune teller, and people come to her and pay her for this. Well, she follows Paul and Silas around as they're walking through this town and says, these men are the servants of the Most High God. They're showing you the way to salvation. Free advertising. I don't know why Paul didn't like this. But apparently this drove him nuts, and after a few days he said, come out of her. He performs an exorcism on the street right there. A demon comes out of the girl. She's returned from freak status to normal. And this causes her owners, the slave owners, to therefore lose in an instant their ability to make money. And therefore, they grab Paul and they drag him into the marketplace and they press charges on him. And they are beating him. And this isn't like Philadelphia if you get... If you get um, booked for something, you have to go downtown. There's an arraignment. There's a, it's a safe place to go to. This is the Roman world. And Paul is dragged forcibly. He's beaten there. And then he's put in jail and beaten and put in stocks. His life is in, was in jeopardy from the moment that, from, from the founding of this church in Philippi. So these people, as they hear these words, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, they know that this isn't a guy who's just kind of talking. He's not just being cute. Or metaphorical. He's like, no, for real, for me to live is Christ, and for real, to die is gain. You know, think about how different Paul's view is of life and death than the one we have. You know, if you have a friend who loses, who, whose parent dies, you will probably call them up or write a note and say, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, if, if, if you um, talk to somebody and they're having a hard weekend, you ask them what's going on, they're like, last year at this time I lost my mom to cancer. We use the language of loss always with regard to death. But Paul uses the language of gaining with regard to death. You see how opposite that is? You know, it's almost as if Paul says things like, up is down, hot is cold, and in is out. This guy has a unique perspective that we need to hear from this morning. And so as we turn to God's word this morning, I want to ask you, no matter what you thought about Paul in the past, whether you like this guy or don't like this guy, 
We, he has some words here. God has some words for us about suffering and about life and death that we need to hear. They're so counter us. They're so the opposite. It's a, it's a view of joy despite that eludes us. So here's where we're going to go this morning. If, you, if you're, you're taking notes, here's my four points. The problem of, evil and, of suffering and evil. Second is the good enough reason, good enough reason for suffering and evil. The gift of suffering. And finally, the great resource for suffering. That's where we're headed this morning. You ready? Not really. Are you guys ready this morning? Thank you. Let's jump in. Let's look at the problem of suffering. People often talk about the problem of evil as one of the great barriers to becoming a Christian. Right? And, and here's how it's summarized. How can I believe in a good and loving and all-powerful God who allows bad things to happen and doesn't stop stuff? How can I believe in a God like this? And it, it's viewed, many of you have probably struggled with this. Many of you have dealt with this in a, some kind of college course. How can a good and loving God, all-powerful, per- all-loving God, allow evil and suffering? How can God do that? You know, how can he? But there are two problems with the problem of evil. One for Christians and one for people who don't claim Christ. So I'll start out with those who don't claim Christ. Here's the problem for you if you are not a Christian with the problem of evil. There's a problem with the problem, and it goes like this. The further you get away from God, the further you get away from God, the less merit you have to complain. This is, this is where I'm borrowing this from uh, Pastor Tim Keller. You know, if you are outside the faith, you really don't have a right to say, I can't believe in a God who would allow evil and suffering. I can't believe in a God like that. You don't have a right to say that. And here's why. Christians know that there is a problem with evil and suffering because we have a moral standard, because we have an objective reference point. So Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail, wrote this. He said, the only way I can know if a human law is unjust or not is if there is a divine law that is behind it. In other words, what he's saying is, if there's no God, if there's no divine law, then my standard for what's just and unjust is arbitrary. It's not really a true standard. There's nothing to measure that against. Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, I measured against what God says, who God is. So other people have said the same thing. Look, um, in his essay on on existentialism, the, the writer John Paul Sartre wrote this. He said, look, if God does not exist then there's not any possibility of an a priori God existing. Or Dostoevsky said this. He said, if God doesn't exist, then everything is right. See, if there's no God, then you know there's no objective standard for saying this is just or unjust. It's just a matter of preference. You can look at the world and say, I prefer that people are treated nicely. I prefer that there's not suffering and pain. But I can't say deep down that it's unjust. What is justice? It becomes a matter of your personal preference. So the converse, though, is true. So the farther you get away from God, the farther you, you run from God and say, I can't believe in a God like that, the less right you have to complain about a God who seems to be unjust. 
when you look at the world and you say, how can a good God allow this? But the converse is true, and here's the problem for Christians. Here's the problem for Christians. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to God, there's another problem with suffering and evil and death. And we see this in Paul's life, and it goes like this. God sometimes seems to sabotage his own work. God sometimes seems to, you know, the people that we think God is really behind this person, and yet their lives don't reflect a life of, like, blessings and abundance and perfect, you know, freedom and without troubles and pain and trials. It seems like sometimes that God undercuts, cuts the legs out from under some of his best people. If you've been around the Christian church long at all, you will see this. People who seem to be about God's work have great potential. And they get, you know, I know a couple that got to the mission field, and they seem to be like the kind of people that God would be behind. Yes, these are the good people. They're, they're planting churches overseas. They're doing big things for God, and yet their lives are full of suffering and pain. So I have some good friends who are missionaries in uh, Kiev in the Ukraine, and they lost a baby in the ninth month of pregnancy. Twice they lost a baby in the ninth month of pregnancy. And I'm like, God, why? These are your people. These are good people. God, why does it seem like that you're cutting the legs out from under the, the people who should be on your team? This is the problem for Christians, right? God doesn't spare his own people suffering and pain. In some, in some cases, it seems more acute. It more difficult. So we need a good enough reason for suffering and pain, don't you? I mean, isn't this what we want in the middle of like dealing with this kind of stuff, seeing this in your own life and the lives of people that you love dearly? Don't you want a good enough reason? Maybe not a great reason, but good enough? You, see, you can look at this passage here. Here's Paul in chapter 1, and he tells us. He's like, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. I'm in prison. My life isn't like happy this isn't great, and yet, he says, in the words that we read, and in fact, little half a sentence before this passage in verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Is this guy crazy? What are the reasons that Paul could show you for his suffering? He's in prison. This is probably the most effective man ever in the history of the church, and yet he's in prison, able to do nothing. And he tells us in chapter 1, well, I can see some reasons for this. I can see, well, maybe, you know, I'm in here because the Roman guards are getting to know God. We read that in chapter 1, in verse 14. Yeah, some of the Roman guards are coming to hear about my reasons for my faith. And then he says... Well, there's also the church. You guys are being encouraged. You're being encouraged in your walk with Christ. You're being encouraged. Those are okay reasons. But are they good enough reasons? You know, sometimes God allows us to see some reason for what happens. You know, sometimes he allows us to see this. Look, we're a young church. Liberty is only eight years old, and we're a young church, not just in terms of how long we've been around, but in terms of our median age. And so I have yet to do a, a funeral here, do a lot of baptisms, do a whole lot of weddings, wish I was doing more of both, you know, but I have yet to do a funeral here. I've done funerals for my grandparents, 
But that's it. We're a church who's unacquainted personally within our community with death. But I can tell you this. I've been a part of other congregations where I have watched God allow us to see someone die well. One of the great testimonies that the, of the reality of who God is is watching a Christian die well. In my former church, we, ha- we watched a woman, uh, Bobby McRobbie was her name, and watched her accept not only the facts, but the circumstances of her, of her life going away. And, you know, you look at that, and, and I watched her die and said, wow, how can this be good? These grandkids are never going to really get to know their grandma. She's not going to be there at their weddings. And yet, you know, you get to see some reason. This makes some sense. As this woman passes away, the way that she died was a testimony to who God was. But it's not totally satisfying, is it? I mean, haven't some of you sat in places where you're like, why? Why is this the way it is, God? Why do you allow these hard things to come? Why are you putting this across here? I mean, Paul gets a glimpse of some reason for his suffering, but he doesn't get a great reason. God doesn't say, here's the secret. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. And for us, we're like many of us, Resonate with that. Yes, I kind of I see some reasons. They're not great reasons. There's got to be more, and there is. There is. This is what we see in this, in this, you know, little passage in this book. Paul says, "Look, I see my circumstances," and he doesn't say, "Hey, I've got great reasons. Here's all the answers. Here's all of what God is trying to accomplish in me being in prison," and yet you see in Paul that he finds a good enough reason. You see here that he finds a good enough reason. See, what does he say? Verse 18, the last part. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. There's something that Paul found here where he says, I'm not just kind of surviving this. I'm not just sort of hanging on the, at the edge of the cliff by my fingernails. There's something which may not be the great reason, but it's good enough not only to help me survive, but to survive with joy. To be able to really hang in there with joy. This is the good enough reason. Here's the good enough reason. The Bible scholar Matthew Henry, who's a guy who wrote a commentary many, many years ago, he writes of this passage. He says, you know what we find in this passage? Is that God is the divine alchemist. Uh, You may not be familiar. We don't really have a science of alchemy anymore. But in in the 1900s, this was a very, very uh, prominent kind of scientific discussion how can you take chemicals to turn lead into gold right and so there were all these people who did this the studies to try to get rich quick and to try to take lead which is basically a useless element except for an x-rays and b- turn that into gold they were looking for some kind of chemical process and matthew henry writes in this pa- about this passage he says look look how we see god is the divine alchemist god takes lead and turns it to gold now, if you've been a Christian very long, that may sound kind of weird to you. Because you can say, I've got plenty of lead in my life. I've got plenty of circumstances that I'm like, I really wish that God would come and like do his little thing. And like, woo, it's going to turn to gold. And we know if, we're, if, you've, if, you've hung in, if, you've, if you've walked as a Christian for any length of time, that that's not always true. You know... We'd like that to be true. You know, we'd like that to be like, hey, you know, 
this is what we want to hear. The sun will come out tomorrow. You know, that song from Annie. You know, I could sing it for you right now. You know, but like, we want to hear like, this is all going to work out great. God is going to turn your circumstances from lead to gold. We're not that church. Joel Osteen has a church. He can talk about that. You can listen to like health and wealth preachers talk about that. That is not true in the Bible. God doesn't take circumstances and just turn them into gold. If he did, we wouldn't be believing in God. We would be using God as a little magic, magic tool, a little magic wand. But look what God is doing here. And this is the good enough reason for Paul. Okay, you need to hear this. Please hear me this morning. God is not one, an alchemist because he turns our circumstances from lead to gold. He is an alchemist because he turns people from lead to gold through those circumstances. See, this is what we see here. Look at verse 19. Paul says here, I know that this is going to work out for my deliverance. That's actually a very poor translation of that word because it's kind of a confusing word. In Greek, it says, this is going to work out for my salvation. So Paul says here, look, I know that through your prayers, verse 19, and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my salvation? Look, if you've hung around the church, you know that this guy, Paul, was the guy who wrote about salvation more than anybody else. And he doesn't believe that salvation comes from God making circumstances work out. This is a guy who wrote in depth about salvation. He said over and over again, salvation is a past event where God sent Jesus to the cross in my stead. Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's how I have eternal life. And we would all say, okay, that's a past event. And yet Paul writes here about a present tense use of the word salvation. This is going to work out for my being saved. What's going on? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, there's a past tense event of what God has done in my life through Jesus Christ and his substitute death for me on the cross. And yet, there is a present circumstance in my life where God is refining me. God is taking my life and turning me from lead to gold through difficult circumstances. This is working out for me being saved for my salvation, for God working out His mercy in my life. So it goes from something I agreed to and assent to theologically and say, yes, I can check off on that box and say that's true about God and the, what He's done on the cross in the past to what God is doing today in my life. As He takes it from here down to here. This is what He's doing. He's saying because of suffering, because of imprisonment, because of chains, because of trials, God is working something deep in my life that he could work no other way. For my joy. This is how God takes circumstances not to turn them from lead to gold, but to turn you from lead to gold. And that is a good enough reason. This is why Paul could say, hey, I rejoice in this. This is what God's doing in my life. It's not a great reason for why he's in prison. It doesn't make everything nice. On nights when he's got chains around his legs and he's chained to a Roman guard and he has to wake him up to go to the bathroom, it doesn't make everything perfect. But he says, I see that God is working here for my joy. I see that God is turning me into a different person through this. And it's not a great reason, but it's a good enough reason. It's a good enough reason for Paul not just to survive, but to have joy in being in that place. 
This is for real. This is the gift of suffering. I know that's a weird word for us to use. The gift of suffering? You know, as one pastor out in San Francisco said, this is the gift that nobody wants. (laughs) Thanks, God. I didn't really want the gift of suffering. Forgiveness? Sure, sign me up. You know, assurance of God's care and his concern for me? Yes. Blessings, of course. God's affirmation of me? You bet. I want all that. The gift of suffering? Can I audit that course? Do I have to take that one for credit? Jesus, really, do I need that one? And yet, it's a gift. It's a gift as we see what Paul is talking about here. Look, this is Christianity. This isn't Christianity 101. This is Christianity 201. He's saying, this is what it's really like to be a person who walks with God. And not on days when it's just sunshiny and you want to skip through the meadow holding hands. But on days where it's dark and where you don't feel like the sun will come out tomorrow. Where God is going to make everything just kind of work. This is who God is. And it, what it, Paul here shows himself being a man who's being drawn into the character of God and God's deeper purposes in his life. And he finds joy in that. See, Paul seems to think that this is normal for Christians. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. He's saying, guys, this is normal. This kind of life with God is actually normal. What's not normal is how you handle it. How you handle hardship, standing in the face of death, trials and suffering that's what's not normal right it's not automatic and and, and hear me on this it is not automatic that when a christian enters into a time of dealing with suffering and hardship that that suddenly transforms them into the character of being like jesus in that moment it's all about what you decide to do with that whether those circumstances define you or you define those circumstances. It's all about that. You know, think about sharpening a knife. I am terrible about at sharpening knives, but this is how I understand it works in theory. You take a wet stone, W-H-E-T, a wet stone, and you draw a blade across it, okay? And you do it at a certain angle, and it sharpens the knife blade. If you do it at the wrong angle, it actually dulls or can even harm the knife blade. And this is what we see in this passage. Look, God applies the stone to our lives okay look hardships come suffering comes but it's your decision at what angle the blade hits the stone whether it's something that as that hardship grinds across your life whether it sharpens you whether it refines you or whether in bitterness it it actually turns to dulling you it's your decision the angle of that blade how will you allow what God is bringing across your plate to either you're defined by it because your, your source of life is somewhere else, you're defined by it, or you define how you walk through that. The difference here, the difference here is what is your life about? See, it's all wrapped up in this one little word in verse 21. For. For. See, what, what does Paul say? For in this moment, those hardships, that stone that's being applied to your life, 
shows what's really your life, where you really find life. For me to live is what? For me to live is what? You get to fill in the blank on that statement. And it's only in times of hardship that we actually examine whether how we filled in that blank is appropriate. So there's lots of ways to answer that question. For me to live is, you know, Epicurean answer this. For me to live is pleasure, having a good time, getting through this life and enjoying what I can out of it. The Stoics, these are the Greek philosophers. For me to live is stiff on our lip. I can be in control. I can handle it. You know, there's more noble answers to this. For some of you, you'd say, no, for me to live is relationships. For me to live is other friends. It's a nice place to have life. You have good friends. For me to live is my family, my kids, my spouse. For me to live is my progress at work. I'm making, I'm, I'm forging ahead. For me to live is a comfortable place to live. You can answer this question in a million ways, right? For me to live is my involved hobbies. For me to live is the way I look. For me to live is exercise. For me to live is, and you just keep going. You can answer this a million ways. But when hardship comes, the one thing, the one place that you can have life that will actually sustain is the only answer that Paul gives. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To find in Him my resource. You know, this is why suffering is a gift. Suffering is like a financial spreadsheet that you get. It's like a printout on how your stock, what your investments are doing. So you get the suffering in your life, and it tells you, where are you invested? For me to live is what? And in the market of eternity, how, are the, how is that man holding up? How's my portfolio? How's my bottom line? Suffering shows you. Suffering is a gift because it shows you whether what you have in life really is of lasting value. If it will really hold you and sustain you. Whether you will find joy in or joy despite. Look, I have walked with you for eight years I'm a, as your pastor. And yet one of my deep concerns for us as a church, one of my very deep concerns, is that we would say, for me to live is Christ. Christ is the only bottom line. Christ is the only treasure that you can put your hope into that actually has a return. Christ is the only source that you can look to that is untouched by circumstances of this life, that is the only one who will give lasting joy in the light of eternity. Look, I don't want you at the end of the day to say, man, Liberty is a great church. Jeff's a great pastor. Our elders are great people. I don't care about that stuff. I want you to be able to say, Jesus is a great treasure. He is a great God. He is what is of lasting significance and value in my life. That's what matters. That's my longing for you. That's why we're talking about finding joy. This is the only thing that renders a life of real lasting joy. Therefore, I will rejoice. The suffering that will come And it will come. Some of you, this is a sermon you need to put in the filing cabinet and remember two to ten years from now. The suffering that will come in your life, which is assured to come, how will it reveal your treasure? How will it reveal your bottom line? 
I want to close by telling you the story of a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago that lived during the 19th century. A very prominent lawyer, a very wealthy man, and was known not only for the success of his career, but also being a close friend of Dwight Moody, uh, a prominent Christian leader and evangelist. And the Spaffords um, were, were well known during the 1860s, but during the 1870s, their life began to hit some real hardship. In 1871, their, their only son died at four years old of scarlet fever. The next year, the next, I'm sorry, 1870. In 1871, his business was completely wiped out by the great fire of Chicago, burned up everything they had. And in trying to recover from that, he decided to send his family back to, back to family in England. So in 1873, his wife and his four daughters board a boat out of New York, and they set sail for, for England. And as they get, it, they get out, the stri- their, their boat, the Ville de Havre, hits another boat and sinks killing all four daughters. Spafford gets a, gets a telegram from his wife that, with only two words on it, saved alone. And trying to recover from this, trying to go pick up the pieces of his lives with his, his family, he goes to New York to go meet his wife in England. And as, as he is cruising out, over the, going out, going to England, the captain of the boat calls him to the bridge and says, I want to show you this place. This is what he said. He said, A careful reckoning has been made, and I believe we are now passing the place where the boat, the Ville de Havre, was wrecked. The water is three miles deep. That night, in his cabin, Spafford went back and wrote the words to a hymn that we sing regularly. It is well, Horatio Spafford wrote. It is well, even though grief is great. It is well even though nothing could bring back four daughters. It is well even though God did not restore his financial prosperity, did not bring back a son, didn't make everything right and perfect again. It is well. The Spaffords went on to have two daughters afterward and moved to Jerusalem and found a ministry to help the poor. Liberty Church, I want you to be able to sing this song with your life. I want you to be able to say, it is well with my soul because Jesus is my treasure. Because to live is Christ. Because he is what I long for. He is my great joy and my great hope. He is the one thing that will never fail you. He is the one hope and bottom line that will never let you down. We're going to sing this song in a few minutes. As we remember the purposeful sacrifice of Jesus, his sufferings, which brought about our redemption. And as we do so, I want to call you to celebrate the fact that Jesus tells us it is well with him and calls us to live a life that says it is well because of him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.